You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 12, given in Munich on the 11th of December, 1910. I would like to speak today about some anthroposophical questions about life, and then ascend from these questions about life from the everyday to the all-embracing to matters of principle. This is the most productive benefit of our striving, that we increasingly learn to judge life and its truth, its reality, through spiritual science. Learn to judge how such judgment itself can lead us into life in the most capable, the most active way, and how it can locate us in the place we have to fill in accordance with our karma, which we have to fill in accordance with our greater or lesser mission during the time in which we are incarnated in a physical body. And here I first want to start with some characteristics in life, which present themselves every day in ourselves or in our environment, with characteristics whose import and significance we can only understand if we can look at them in the light of spiritual science. I would like to start with two negative virtues of life and then speak about some virtues. I want to start from the virtues of goodwill and satisfaction and the negative virtues of mendacity and jealousy. Let us first consider the two negative virtues which we often encounter in life. It cannot be denied that in the broadest circles, both among the simplest people and among those who already belong to the leaders in life, there is a deep, deep dislike of and antipathy toward what we can call jealousy and mendacity. To begin by quoting some of those who belonged to the leaders in life, I refer to the sculptor Benvenuto Cellini and to those passages in his autobiography where he says that In thoroughly observing himself, he had to admit to many negative virtues, but could say that serious mendacity was not one of them. This artist thus finds a certain satisfaction in being able to exclude mendacity from his character traits when observing himself. And Goethe once said, as the result of his self-observation, that he had to admit to many things, but that jealousy, this ugly negative virtue, had not actually gnawed away at his heart. Thus we can see at the peaks of life how mendacity and jealousy are seen with antipathy, how people everywhere who are used to looking at life in a somewhat deeper way, including where great abilities in life appertain to the soul, say, you have to avoid these negative virtues in particular. And who would deny that this thorough antipathy toward mendacity and jealousy extends through all, all layers of our humankind? You only need to think how much it would gnaw at your hearts if at a certain moment you had to admit in truly honest and proper self-observation, I am a jealous personality. 
In making such an admission, you would most certainly feel, if you resolutely had to admit this, that you had to take up within yourself something like a battle against jealousy, a fight against jealousy. This is a deeply rooted feeling, that mendacity and jealousy are ugly human characteristics. Why do we actually have such feelings? Well, you see, people are not always very clear why they have such a deep antipathy toward this or that. They are often not very clear what slumbers in the more or less unconscious part of their soul life and undoubtedly exists. With regard to jealousy and mendacity, human beings feel that they are in breach of something which is connected with our most human values. We only need to say one word and we feel it. After all, spiritual science is intended gradually to make us aware that apart from the individual personalities who are incarnated in the flesh, there is something like a unified, general human element which lives as the divine human element in the same way in all souls. And here it is spiritual science which presents us with this as a great ideal and which gradually works toward an understanding of that general human element. And in an emotional way, there is something in all human hearts which in a certain sense always says, look for the bond which holds all human beings together, which always winds from soul to soul, and you will find it. And the corresponding feeling can be expressed in the word empathy. Empathy is such a general human characteristic that we have to say the bond which goes from soul to soul declares itself as if darkly in such empathy. And in turn we feel in the unconscious how particularly with mendacity and jealousy we violate empathy, the recognition of that which is common to all human beings. What do we actually do when we tell a lie to someone? We do nothing other than build a barrier between them and us. The thing which should unite us, the common knowledge of a truth which should live in our and their soul if things were correct, this is what we tear apart in telling an untruth. In the moment that we tell an untruth, we fail to accept that we should actually also live in the other with the best part of ourself. And if we are jealous of someone, be it their abilities, be it other things in life, then we sin against empathy in the sense that we fail to recognize the person as what he or she should actually be, as something which is part of us and about whose merits and gifts and luck we should actually be happy if we felt properly connected with him or her. So we sin against the most beautiful thing in human life, against empathy, if we are jealous and mendacious people. And why is this actually expressed in such a vehement way in the dissatisfaction about these two characteristics? Why? Well, both characteristics can truly show us how what is located in our soul can propagate, can advance to the envelopes of our being and has significance for these envelopes. Jealousy is something which clearly expresses itself for occult observation, if it is present in a person, in a very specific state of the astral body, 
and jealous people, however much they are able to hide their jealousy from the external world, reveal the characteristic of jealousy in their astral body. Our astral body has a very specific basic characteristic. Although it is different in each person and shows a great variety of differences in different people, it nevertheless has a certain basic characteristic. And when we look at it with clairvoyant observation as an aura, it has very specific color characteristics. These fade in a disturbing way in jealous people. They fade. They become weak and dull. And the astral body of a jealous person, in a sense, becomes deficient in the force which it should channel toward the whole human organism. With mendacity, it is in turn such that it and each individual lie are expressed in the etheric body. The etheric body loses vitality and energy for life if people are mendacious. We can even note that externally, strange as it may sound for our age, it is nevertheless true that in people who lie a lot, wounds, for example, are harder to heal under otherwise similar conditions than in truthful people. Of course, we cannot take that in absolute terms. There can also be other reasons. But all things being equal, wounds are more difficult to heal in mendacious people than in truthful people. It is good to look at these things in life, and it can also easily be explained. The etheric body of the human being is the actual life principle. It is what must contain the life forces, but the latter are undermined through mendacity. So the etheric body cannot provide as much vitality as is necessary for healing if the etheric body has been deprived of vitality through mendacity, if it is not always imbued with those movements, those circumstances, which derive from truthfulness. We should take good account of these things, because we will understand life better in many respects when we do. Now, you know that we have to look at what approaches human beings in the light of two powers who influence human life as it develops from incarnation to incarnation. We have to look at human life under the influence of the Luciferic and Aramonic powers. The Luciferic powers are those which act on our astral body, which radiate the action of their forces into our astral body and tempt us in that regard. The Aramonic powers are those which tempt us with regard to the etheric body. Indeed, it is Lucifer who takes us by the scruff of the neck, as it were, when we are jealous of people. Jealousy is a real Luciferic characteristic, a characteristic which comes from Lucifer, whereas mendacity is a characteristic which comes from Araman, because Araman sends out the forces and powers which radiate into our etheric body. Now we can say, it may well have been absolutely necessary that Lucifer and Araman were delegated by the wise cosmic powers to act on us to make us independent. In causing us to misuse our independence, they are, in a certain sense, enemies of the higher development of humanity. But even if they are the enemy of human beings, in a certain sense, in their higher development, they are very great friends and make quite peculiar compromises between themselves. We can refer particularly to such compromises 
when we look at human characteristics like jealousy and mendacity. Jealousy. Any person who is not completely corrupted will do anything to fight against this jealousy in the moment where they have to recognize, quote, I am jealous by nature, close quote. And we do not need to be particularly virtuous in order to feel compelled to do that. But things are sometimes much more deep-seated than the extent of the strength which comes from the consciousness. And human beings sometimes imagine it to be too easy in combating such things. So it can happen that they fight against such things because they consider them to be ugly, but they do not go away because they simply change their form and reappear somewhere else. They then appear in masked form. And because we have jealousy so much, we fight against it. But if the soul is not yet strong enough to fight it thoroughly, it disappears as jealousy, but reappears in another form. You all know the characteristic in people, which we find so frequently and which we could call fault-finding and censoriousness, finding the faults in our fellow human beings. When someone says, quote, I am a jealous person, I do not want my fellow human beings to have advantages, close quote, they feel bad. They feel that they have to fight against that. But if someone can say, quote, that person has done something terrible, Close quote. They feel that their censoriousness is justified in a certain way. They feel properly in their element. Just think, if that were not the case, how many tea parties and pub discussions would no longer have a purpose, where frequently little else is done than allow fault-finding and censoriousness a free reign. And then people feel that they are justified in what they have done, because they can say they cannot close their eyes to someone else's errors. The only thing is, it depends for what reasons we see the errors of our fellow human beings, whether we see them with the intention of improving life, or whether we are following an inclination of our soul, which frequently is nothing other than masked jealousy. People fight jealousy because they hate it, but they cannot get rid of it completely because they are too weak. So it is dressed up as censoriousness and continues in the soul in this way. When that happens, we have not fought jealousy. We have simply forced it to metamorphose. What has happened in truth is that the person has fought against Lucifer because the latter is the ruler over jealousy and many other things. But Lucifer then says to Araman, if I can put it like this, quote, See, dear Araman, that person hates my regime of jealousy because he does not want to be jealous. You take him with regard to this characteristic. Close quote. Then Araman says, quote, Yes, I will compress it into the etheric body. Close quote. And it is compressed into the etheric body as censoriousness, as fault-finding, as misled judgment about what surrounds the person. Because power of judgment is always connected with the movements and forces of the etheric body. In this case, the regime with regard to our soul is transferred from Lucifer to Araman, and thus many characteristics which we would hate and fight against if they were to reveal themselves to us in their original form appear in a masked shape. 
Then they sometimes appear in such a form that we actually find them quite justified and even feel good about having risen to do the right thing in life. Then we are properly caught in the tentacles of the other power, the Aramonic power. Then we must not forget that a characteristic is much more dangerous when it appears behind a mask than in its original form. That is why it is always good to ask when we see something or other in life, is that not perhaps simply a transformed negative virtue? It is exceptionally necessary that we learn to look at life truthfully in this way. We can basically only do that if we use the guidelines given to us by anthroposophical wisdom in order to look at life properly. Now we have to say, the things which appear in life as this or that negative virtue, be it in its true form or in a mask, we can often see working karmically in a single incarnation. We do not need to wait for the transition from one incarnation to the next. We can see in one incarnation already the karmic effects of a characteristic which comes to appearance in a particular phase of life. And those who really want to look at life and pay a little attention to the fact that we cannot get to know life if we forget by tomorrow what happened today, but if we look at longer phases in human life, they will also find karma at work in one incarnation, in one life. It is truly necessary that we pay very careful attention in a certain sense to how the sins of life really only reveal themselves decades later. Of all the races, starting with human beings and stretching up into the higher worlds, human beings are truly the most forgetful species. Even if we have known someone for decades, we forget what came to light decades ago. We like to let that disappear from our memory. I have probably already mentioned a small example here which can once again show us how we have to look at life in greater periods if we want to recognize its true shape. Something superficial which I just want to mention in passing. It is from the period in which I had the opportunity to observe many children in various families. When we educate children, we do not, after all, just observe those children which we have to educate ourselves but also the more or less little offspring of the uncles, aunts, nieces, and nephews, and so on. And then we can make note of many things with regard to life. Well, it is a long time ago the fashions change. At that time, when I was educating children, it was the fashion that quite a few doses of red wine were given by the educators to small children at mealtimes to strengthen them. That is what happened. It was thought to be a good thing. If one noted at the time this and this child received red wine and the other one did not, we can discover some remarkable things when we have the opportunity to observe, as I try to do, what has become of these children. I can say the two, three, four-year-old children of that time, now people aged 27, 28, 29, who were given red wine as children, are fidgety, nervous people, and sometimes find it exceptionally difficult to find their way in life. We should not, of course, make those observations for just five years. That has become very commonplace today. That we try this or something else, and if there is success in the following months, it is suddenly a widely used medicine. In this field, people are forgetful as well. 
The number of medicines which went out of fashion again after five years is also something which people have forgotten about again. But, as I said, if one extends one's observations over decades, then one can begin to get a sense of how life works. There is really a great difference between the children who were given red wine at the time and those who were not. But one would have to make one's observations for three decades before seeing that, and that is how it is. I interjected this to show that it is necessary not to be forgetful if we want to see karma at work, and that our observations have to extend over longer periods of time. The same thing applies to those things which appear more in the soul sphere. When we compare the second half of a person's life with the first half, and that person was mendacious or jealous in a certain period of their life, or had jealousy under the mask of censoriousness, it is quite possible to see how the effect already appears karmically in the second half of life. Mendacious people always already show in a single incarnation a very specific karmic effect of mendaciousness, a certain shyness, the impossibility, we might say, to look a person directly in the eye. That will assuredly happen. Just try observing the matter. You will find it confirmed. Popular sayings sometimes have a deep and wise core. It is not for nothing that people say in many regions that one should avoid a person who cannot look you in the eye, because that is the karmic effect of mendaciousness. In contrast, jealousy or jealousy masked as censoriousness and fault-finding can be found in a later period of life in the same incarnation in such a way that the people concerned have the characteristic of not being able to stand properly on their own feet, that they have the urge to lean on other people, that they need advice about minor things, that they would like always to run to other people for advice. Independence in life is lost through jealousy, fault-finding, censoriousness. Such people become weak in their soul. Now, we encounter these characteristics with their karmic effects in the soul when we look at the one incarnation. We will shortly take into account a little how these karmic effects come to expression when we go from one incarnation to the next. But in order not to be one-sided, we will always consider good characteristics, goodwill, and satisfaction. Everyone knows what a person with goodwill is. A person with goodwill is someone who feels satisfied in a certain respect when someone else is successful, achieves something, when they notice good characteristics in one person or another. Goodwill is present when we experience what the other experiences as if it were our own. Such goodwill in turn has a very specific effect on our astral body, which is pretty much the opposite of the effect of jealousy. We can see how the lights of the astral body are illuminated when goodwill is expressed. The astral body becomes brighter and more radiating when there are stirrings of goodwill in the soul of the person. The aura becomes brighter, more radiating, and thus richer. It becomes more saturated in itself, and then it is enabled to pour into the human being first something like soul warmth, and then even something of a feeling of good health. 
and when we see a satisfied person in front of us, a person who is not inclined to be upset about everything from the beginning, to be dissatisfied with everything, then the etheric body shows us very specific characteristics. It is important that we look at this in turn in a specific way. Because actually we should be clear about how much of our dissatisfaction fundamentally really depends on ourselves. The one person cannot do enough to dig up those things everywhere which make him dissatisfied. And we feel that it is not only happier natures but also better natures who are capable of ensuring that even if the worst things constantly approach us, we, nevertheless, have reasons to be happy about one thing or another. There are such reasons. And anyone who does not want to admit that they exist can only blame themselves. Satisfaction, particularly, when it is caused by a better characteristic of our soul, strengthens the etheric body in respect of its vitality. And once again, it is the case, all things being equal, that wounds or other things in satisfied people who have reason to be easily satisfied, not to become too upset about what happens to them, heal more easily than in someone who is grumpy and dissatisfied, who gets upset about everything and is never satisfied by anything, all things being equal, as I said. And now we can in turn see quite precisely in one life, and this is important, that we thoroughly take account of this in educating children, that someone who, at a certain stage of their life, was thoroughly imbued with satisfaction and sought to find those things which can give satisfaction, perhaps despite pain and suffering, that in such people there is a karmic effect in the same life still, even if it happens decades later. This can come to expression in that from such people who endeavored to be satisfied, a certain beneficial, harmonious effect in life streams out to their surroundings at a certain stage in their life. You know that this happens. There are people in whose surroundings others easily become fidgety, and those who simply, through the fact that they are there, calm others down. People who have endeavored at one stage of their life to be satisfied obtain as the karmic effect for the next stage of the same life this possibility to have a harmonious effect on their surroundings, in a certain sense to be benefactors for their surroundings purely through the fact that they are there. People of goodwill, we can always observe that, who have endeavored to be of goodwill, obtain the karmic effect that in later phases of their life they are remarkably successful in achieving all those things connected with them which they intend to do. We sometimes find that we cannot explain how, for some people, everything works, that they feel up to everything they do and that others are unsuccessful, that nothing works for them. That takes us back to the karmic cause of goodwill or badwill. You can observe these things which I have outlined for you in life. If you exclude the sources of error which exist, you will see that life confirms what I have said. If we now move from one incarnation to the next one, we have to say, in one incarnation the karmic effects can actually only reveal themselves in the soul, 
Here the effects of jealousy are revealed in certain weaknesses and in a lack of independence. The effect of mendacity in shyness. The effect of goodwill and satisfaction, as I have described. We simply do not have the thorough, deep-seated influences on our physical organization in a single incarnation so that we could advance beyond the soul with the karmic effects. These things only work as far as the body, into the construction and organization of the body in the next incarnation. And while we turn ourselves into people with a lack of independence in one incarnation, through jealousy and censoriousness, they act to weaken the body in its constitution, in its structure, in the next incarnation. A weak body is built by someone who was previously plagued by jealousy or by masked jealousy, by fault-finding and censoriousness. But now we also have to say that if we have concerned ourselves a little with what spiritual science otherwise shows us, that it is by no means a coincidence if we are brought together in a new incarnation with a particular person. We are guided into the family, the environment with which we have a connection. And so you will not find it strange when I say, someone who was a jealous person in one incarnation will be reborn with people, be it that they are his parents or other people, of whom he was jealous, whom he judged or gossiped about. He is brought together with them, and we are perhaps brought together in that we come into this environment with a weak organization. At this point the matter becomes very practical. The teaching of karma comes close to the way we live life. Here we can say that when a child is born with a weak organization, this is the consequence of the jealous disposition of the previous incarnation, and we are the ones who are the object of that jealousy and this child has been karmically brought together with us, because we are the ones whom the child pursued with jealousy and the need for gossip. It is fruitful when we tell ourselves. If karma has any meaning at all, it is justified to look at the matter in this way. So let us look at it in this way. Of course, the matter only bears fruit if we ask ourselves, what should we do with regard to such a weak child? we only need to ask ourselves what would seem to us the best thing to do morally in ordinary life if someone pursued us with their jealousy and fault-finding. Perhaps it is not always possible to do the best thing in ordinary everyday life, but what would appear as the best thing for us? Well, quite certainly, forgiveness would appear to be the best thing for us. We can say that our life is not perhaps such that we can always forgive, but the best thing is undoubtedly forgiveness, and forgiveness is the most effective and also the most productive thing in life. If we can already say with ordinary life that this is best, even if we cannot always practice it, forgiveness, then we can see that under all circumstances the real application of the principle of forgiveness is the right thing to do when we have to recognize what I have explained as the karmic effect from an earlier incarnation. When a weak child is born into our environment or is brought together with us, we have to tell ourselves that since karma must not just remain a theoretical idea, we have to consider that we were the object of jealousy and gossip.
Now, in our deepest heart, we can practice the feeling of forgiveness under all circumstances. We can, so to speak, envelop such a child in an atmosphere of constantly activated feelings of forgiveness. If we did this in life, if we felt brought together with people who are weak, and if we did not just grasp the idea of forgiveness theoretically, but kept activating the feeling, quote, I have something to forgive you, close quote, in your soul, I want to forgive you, and kept renewing this feeling, then this would be a practical introduction of anthroposophical sentiments into life. We would undoubtedly see an effect. Just try carrying this out in practice, and we will see that the people whom we forgive in this way and for whom we keep renewing the feelings of forgiveness, if they are born weak into our surroundings, then blossom, that our feelings have a health-giving effect which allows them to blossom. And in this way we become healers, health-givers, for the people with whom karma has brought us together. In this way, anthroposophy becomes productive if we do not just consider it as a sum of ideas. It is basically quite an egotistical thing if we begin to develop an enthusiasm for anthroposophy because we are passionate about the ideas of anthroposophy which appear true to us. Because what do we satisfy in that case? We satisfy what is our longing for an harmonious worldview. That is very nice. But the greater thing is if we imbue our whole life with what arises from these ideas, when these ideas enter into our hands, into every step, and into all the things we experience and do. Only then does anthroposophy become a principle of life. And unless it does that, it has no value. We can also say something similar with regard to other characteristics. If, for example, we were a mendacious person in one incarnation and are reborn, then we are brought together precisely with those to whom we told a bucket full of lies. We frequently find, if we are true occult researchers, that a child is born into an environment to which he or she cannot obtain a proper relationship, in which he or she is not understood, and he or she does not understand it. It sometimes happens that we have a particular effect on our surroundings. I don't know whether you have ever observed this, but it basically extends much further than just to other human beings. There are certain people who can make every plant grow. They simply have green fingers. Just because it is them, the flowers thrive. Other people can try as hard as they like. The plants simply die. That happens. The relationship between the individual beings of existence are much more complex than we generally think. These complex relationships are, of course, mainly between one person and another, and when karma brings us together with a child who has valiantly lied to us in a previous incarnation, the situation arises that we find it difficult to establish a relationship with that child. We should take note of that. We must not only judge that by our temperament, but we also have to judge it karmically. We should say it may be because perhaps we were often lied to by this child. Now we can help this child and make it strong. How can we best forgive something which can be expressed by saying that someone has told us a lie? We forgive that best if we teach them a truth. In rectifying the lie, 
we do something good for the other person, but have not thereby yet caused them to advance. We do the latter if we try to teach them a useful truth. We have to pursue a kind of policy in dealing with the other person that allows him or her to advance. If we are held to look at the matter karmically, it is of particular benefit when we try to be quite truthful toward people with whom we have been karmically brought together, of whom we know that they cannot find a relationship with us because they are shy. Then we will see how these people in turn blossom in our openness and how such openness is of great benefit for them. Thus we can see how we can obtain principles of life if we look at the action of karma in a practical way. What we characterized earlier as the action of goodwill already in a single life can be seen in such a way that it truly acts to produce something like the harmonization of life, but initially in the soul. In people in whom this, that works from one incarnation to the next, we find that they have actually been born with a more happy organization, which we can call, in quotes, skillful. Goodwill, satisfaction in an incarnation, produce suppleness and dexterity in another incarnation. It is true that this is the case because it can always be proven in the field of occult research. And it is quite possible to observe ourselves and learn something of the way that the previous incarnation acts into the present one. We can be quite certain that this is the case in people whose fingers are quite unsuitable for sewing on a button, which has come off, or people who, when they are meant to take a glass to the cupboard, will quite happily drop it. I am now exaggerating a little. But in more subtle nuances, there are many people who are organized in such a way that they cannot do anything other than not move their fingers in the right way, that they always blunder. This is of deep significance in life. Whether or not we can use the instrument of the body well or whether it offers treacherous obstacles at every moment. This is exceptionally important. And when we see a clumsy child growing up, then we have to assume in most cases that he or she was lacking in satisfaction and goodwill. If we see skillfulness appearing so that the person can almost do it beforehand when he or she touches something, then the whole thing is certainly the karmic effect of goodwill and satisfaction. When we look at it like this, we may say, actually we can work in a wonderful way from one incarnation to the next. The opportunity opens up to be able to work on our next incarnation. And we will change a great deal for our next incarnation if we take the serious decision to observe whether we might not still have a little bit of fault-finding and censoriousness within us. If we attempt to check whether we have a little bit of these things in us, we may even find that we have them in us to a considerable extent. It would be a good thing if we attempted to check whether we have a little bit of them within us. Then we can start working on ourselves. And we may be able to prevent ourselves from being born in the next incarnation as weak and pale, prevent ourselves in this life even from becoming children with a lack of independence, as it were. When we look at these things, we will say to ourselves, it is no fantasy to see the individual incarnations like links in a chain for human beings, and to look at the earth as a kind of training, 
through which we learn to use what is offered to us in the individual incarnations so that we ascend higher and higher and progress further and further. Because why do we basically incarnate? We can best obtain a concept of that if we ask ourselves about the two great differences which exist between our incarnations in ancient pre-Christian times and our present incarnations, which have happened after the Christ impulse was here, because there is a very considerable difference. The difference between our incarnations in ancient pre-Christian times and our present incarnations can best be described by saying, if we look back to the incarnations of people in pre-Christian times, the souls in this pre-Christian period all to a certain degree had retained something still of what all souls had at the start of the incarnations on earth. All souls had a kind of natural clairvoyance, being able to look into the spiritual world, and the progression of the incarnations precisely consists of this inheritance from the spiritual world, from our spiritual origins, gradually being lost, that people increasingly stepped out onto the physical plane, and the spiritual world increasingly disappeared for them. The Christ impulse means that if we find the possibility of incorporating Christ in us, of combining Him with our I, capital, we begin once again to ascend more and more to what we were at the beginning, except richer. That we will once again be back in the Spirit at the end of our incarnations in the way that we were there at the start of our incarnations is achieved by incorporating the power of Christ, by using our next incarnations in such a way that we incorporate more and more of Christ. These are the great differences between the pre-Christian and post-Christian incarnations. We are actually still in a transitional period. We are profoundly pushed out onto the physical plane with regard to pure physical perception, and we have actually today reached a climax in physical perception. For the Christ impulse is only at the beginning, and it is in following incarnations that people will begin properly to incorporate Christ. We'll only then start to grow fond of these incarnations because they give them the opportunity to experience something which can only be experienced through earth existence, the incorporation of the Christ impulse into the soul. We can observe even in great personalities how there is the mighty difference between the incarnations before the Christ impulse on earth and afterward. Allow me to tell you about one event. Some time ago I had cause to address our southernmost European branch, I mean, insofar as we are talking about Rosicrucian theosophy, in Palermo. And when I came into Sicily by ship from Naples, I had the very specific feeling that here there was something to learn about occult facts which is difficult to investigate in the North, because a personality, an individuality, whom I cannot name right now, appeared who had a certain importance at the turn of the Middle Ages to the modern age. He became a talking point in our and in neighboring regions, and the occultist likes to ask about him what was the situation with regard to the previous incarnation of this personality. That was an important research question for me, and strangely I was given the hope as I arrived in Sicily 
that I might perhaps learn something about this question through the occult research which was possible there. And that soon turned out to be the case. It is, of course, something intimate which I am telling here, but within our branches we no longer need to hold back completely with regard to such intimate things. There is something in the whole spiritual atmosphere of Sicily. I do not say the outer, but the spiritual atmosphere. Something very, very strange. And in pursuing this strange thing, I was finally led to its source, to a great wise man who was active in Sicily, and who was dismissed in the history of philosophy in a few words, but who is actually very little known outwardly, exoterically. It is Empedocles. If we now, as occultists, want to characterize Empedocles, and I will do that shortly, we have to say, in a certain respect, Empedocles was far ahead of his time. He was too mature for his time. But, in another respect, he could not get beyond his time. There was a deep split in his soul. Empedocles is truly a great all-embracing personality. He was active in Sicily, not just as a philosopher, not just as a leader of the mysteries, but as a statesman, architect, and as all kinds of other things. He was a kind of organizer, this wonderful Empedocles. Now, Empedocles lived in Sicily about four five centuries before the Christ impulse, and he had moved ahead of his time to the extent that he had the urge to immerse himself in the material aspect of the world. In earlier times, People never submerse themselves in matter in such a purely external way as today. When they spoke about water, like Thales, for example, they referred to something spiritual. Empedocles was the person who, in a certain sense, preempted a materialistic principle in that he compiled all existence out of the four elements, which, however, he conceived of materially. And he conceived of the constitution of the world through mixing and separating this matter. He lost the spiritual. Because in looking back on his incarnations as an occult personality, he should have found the Christ impulse. He would have been the right person for that. When we look back today in the Akasha Chronicle, we find the Christ impulse in a very specific place. But anyone living before the Christ impulse could not do that. They could not incorporate it as an earthly impulse because it had not yet existed physically. That is what Empedocles missed, what could not flow into his soul. He did not have the counterweight to the materialism arising in him. But because he was a personality with strong impulses, the impulses of the occultist, this made him act out such disharmony. This is what the truth turned out to be. This brought him to the point of wanting to be one with the material aspect of the four elements. Just as otherwise, when we seek the truth, we want to unite ourselves with this spiritual aspect in the spirit. And he threw himself into Etna. He threw himself in because he wanted to be one with the elements. He sought to identify himself with the divine, which appeared to him in a material image. And I would say that this product of the immolation in the fires of Etna still exists today as something fertilizing in the atmosphere of Sicily, like the effect of a sacrifice. There is something great and mighty present, but it is based on this what we might call wrong, dismissive materialism. Please do not misunderstand the expression in quotes wrong, 
which was wrong for its time. Empedocles, who could not find the Christ in looking back, although he needed to find him, throws his life away. That is how it came about that he returned to life in such a curious way at the start of the modern age, and lived there quite differently. The time has not yet come to speak of the personality in which he was reincarnated. A wonderful view opens up of what the Christ impulse actually is in the course of development. The Christ event is situated right in the middle between the earlier and later incarnation of Empedocles, and when we compare the two incarnations, we can see in the individuality of Empedocles what the effect is when we look back as a spirit with a new way of looking at things and find the Christ impulse or do not find it. That makes a huge difference. Just as souls in ancient times had to go back from incarnation to incarnation to see how they united themselves with the divine spiritual being in earlier incarnations, so we have to have the possibility, when we go backward from our own incarnation and follow the time from our birth to the previous death and then from the latter to the previous birth and so on, to find the Christ impulse on this path. It has to be found specifically by spiritual researchers. The Christ impulse sparks a light, whereas otherwise they are plunged into darkness at this moment, and everything that existed lies in darkness. We need the Christ impulse, like a torch precisely in the field of spiritual research, because otherwise darkness comes. Otherwise we cannot look with clairvoyance into the true ground of the Akasha Chronicle of ancient times. That can be observed in a wonderful way, in an example such as that of Empedocles. Here we can obtain a feeling how these incarnations follow one another in our earth existence, how, as it were, human beings moved in a descending direction as far as the Christ impulse, how they stepped further and further out onto the physical plane, and how we are once again in the process of gradually ascending to spiritual regions. The last great spirit of descent is the great Buddha, the first great impulse for ascent, Jesus Christ. And there is perhaps nothing that can give such a feeling of the mighty difference between the Buddha principle and the principle of Jesus Christ than if we consider what the great Buddha once said to his closest pupils with regard to his enlightenment, which is symbolically referred to as the enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. There Buddha says, quote, When I look back to earlier incarnations, I see how I originated in the divine spiritual ground of the world, how I have gone from incarnation to incarnation, always living with my spiritual core in the outer temple of the body, descending into the physical world. But now, in this incarnation, I have found the possibility of not having to return to an incarnation. I have gone from one bodily temple to the next. In each incarnation, the deity has erected the temple of my body for me. Now that I am incarnated in it for the last time, I feel how in this bodily temple the timber is collapsing and how I no longer need to return to such a temple. Because that was his teaching, that true striving has to aim to leave behind our activity on earth. 
must no longer have a connection with the bodily temple but strive toward the final incarnation when we can leave it in order to continue to live purely in the spirit. That was the last reference to the descent of human beings, to a memory which human beings could have of the archetypal wisdom of which stood at the start of the human race. Oh, it is moving to see the Buddha standing there saying, quote, I have proceeded from one bodily temple to the next. Now I feel that it is for the last time. Close quote. If we compare this, ignoring all the metaphysical background, with the intimate words which Christ spoke to his closest pupils with his saying, quote, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Close quote. Then we can see that there was the great longing in the Buddha for the timber of the bodily temple to collapse and for there no longer to be a necessity to return to it, but that in Christ there was the promise, quote, destroy it, and in three days I will raise it up again, close quote. Here we find expressed the love for the earth world, for the following incarnations of human beings in which they find the possibility to keep rebuilding the temple of their body so that they can keep learning and ascending, so that when the earth has reached its goal, the earth itself becomes a corpse, falls away, so to speak, from the soul nature of humanity as a whole, just as our body falls away from the soul when we pass through the portal of death. But then human beings will have ascended further and further. In being Christianized, human beings have become capable of transferring their lives to new stages of existence as humanity as a whole. Christ's words do not mean that he intends to return into a physical body himself, but that he will return to the principle of building the body, that he will remain with earth existence until the end of the earth. I tried to express that in what I have Theodora, the seer in the mystery drama, say, where you can see how Christ will become more and more familiar in human life, although he will not return to a physical body. But he will be experienced in the physical temple of the body of human beings. And his words, quote, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, close quote, contain the promise, quote, yes, I will make it true, that I can enter into human souls so that increasing numbers of people can come who can say as Paul did, not I, but Christ in me. Close quote. So we can see how we can look at spiritual science on a small scale as a principle of life in that we obtain the possibility to see the karmic effect of certain characteristics of our character, our soul, between birth and death and in seeing their effect continue into the bodily organization of the next incarnation. And so we can see how spiritual science on a large scale presents us with the noblest ideals and tells us what will become of us, Christianized human beings, when the earth will become a corpse and fall away from the soul element of human beings, when human beings will be called upon to progress to other planetary states, Thus, spiritual science can give us the greatest ideals and flow into the most minor circumstances of life. That makes it practical for life, and that is what it can and should increasingly become. If we become anthroposophists in the sense that all our conduct, and be it in this or that place in life which might appear to be far removed from actual anthroposophical activity, 
is imbued in every detail by an anthroposophical attitude, by anthroposophical reflection and thinking in every detail. Only then will have occurred what we can call the fulfillment of our being with anthroposophy. Anthroposophy must not be considered as a theory. It has to be seen at the same time as something to be practiced in life, but as a practice in life which needs to be learned. And basically, we have to be clear that we have to spur ourselves on through the true concrete content of anthroposophy if it is to become something we practice in life and not want to say, I understand this about anthroposophy and it is the correct thing, but that we first make ourselves deeply, deeply familiar with what spiritual science can tell us. Then it has to become a force in our life and it cannot do that until we have imbued ourselves with it, but then it will become that on the smallest and on the largest scale. Then we will obtain an outlook on the greater context of human progress and on the most minor facts of everyday life. The end of Lecture 12